All right. Uh, without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look to cover verses 1 through 15. Verse 1 of our text this morning is a, is a transition in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This will be the final departure from the land of Galilee before Jesus uh, makes his way to uh, Jerusalem and makes his triumphal entry uh, there and then is ultimately crucified uh, there on the hill of Calvary. And so Galilee, as you guys know, we've been going through the book of Matthew. Galilee served as somewhat of a base of operations for a number of years for Jesus and his disciples. While in Galilee, the Lord and his disciples experienced many great things uh, and overcame some trials and difficulties as well. And Jesus has, it tells us, has finished his sayings the, and uh, his teachings in that area, ministry for them in that area and in that season of come to an end. And now it was time to move on from there, to head towards Judea and ultimately Jerusalem, where Jesus will be tried and crucified upon the cross of Calvary. And so we begin our descent from Galilee down towards Jerusalem. I'm excited just to kind of think that, that the culmination, and we've been working our way through Matthew and, and getting to, uh, not that it's not all good stuff, but just to the, the heart of, of God's uh, sacrifice for us. And so, uh, as we've noted before, the Lord was working upon a divine timeline, and it was time to move on. And we see here, as he and the disciples departed, we're told in verse 2 that great multitudes followed him. Okay, this, of course, was something that was becoming more and more common as well as Jesus' popularity spread. We are not told in these verses who was part of that great multitude, but as we continue to read through chapter 19, and has, as we've covered it already, we'll see that it included the disciples. Okay, it also included those who were in need of healing. It included the Pharisees were amongst this group. Uh, some children were part of this group. Presumably, probably mom and dad were there with these children as well. And so a, a very mixed crowd, people that were excited about Jesus, people who needed uh, uh, the Jesus' healing touch upon their lives, and people who were, who were really not so excited about Jesus. Consistently, the crowds would come out to him for both healings and to hear him teach. And this situation was no different. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus healed them that, they, that were there in the multitude. Mark's gospel also tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, regarding the same account that he taught them there as well. And some of what Jesus taught to the group is recorded for us in the following verses and that we're going to be covering here this morning, these verses regarding divorce and marriage were something that he taught upon when he was asked. And so we're going to look into this uh, and, and get into some of the details here. Verse 3, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Okay. As mentioned, the Pharisees, they were part of this great multitude there that day. And they were not there to listen to and follow the teachings of Jesus or to be healed. But rather, they were there, as we're told, to come to test Jesus. 
Okay? This isn't the first time that the Pharisees have come to test Jesus with what they believed were difficult questions or to present Jesus with difficult situations and see how he would respond to each of them. If you guys recall through our time in the book of Matthew and if you just recall different uh, gospel accounts, we know that they came to him previously uh, testing him by asking that he show them a sign. Uh, we want to see a sign from heaven that you are who you are, say you are. Uh, also, they sought to test him by bringing an adulterous woman before him, asking him what ought to happen to her. Remember as well, when they were in the synagogue, they asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, hoping that they might be able to uh, accuse him of breaking the law. They asked Jesus about fasting. They asked him about not following the traditions of the elders. And, and all these questions that they came with were, were for one purpose. To try and, and trap Jesus into saying or doing something that they might be able to bring accusations against him. To discredit him and his ministry. And here they come to Jesus with what they no doubt think will be something that they can trap him with in regards to divorce. Divorce, just as it is today, was a controversial issue back then. During the first century, there were two leading Jewish rabbis of the day named Hillel and Shammai. Now, these two rabbis, they founded opposing schools of Jewish thought known as the House of Hillel and the House of Shammai. And although they agreed on many things regarding the interpretation of the law, there were certain things that they were vehemently opposed uh, in opposition to uh, one another. Okay? One was the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Okay? And so what I want to do today is we're going to flip to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're given some instructions by Moses in regards to the topic of divorce. And so if you guys make your way uh, to the book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy Chapter 24. Let's read verses 1 through 4 and follow along here if you can. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says, This is Moses speaking. He says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Follow along? Did you guys get that? All right. 
back, just looking at this now, okay? Hopefully, as you were following along, you were able to discern and understand that the intention of Moses giving this command was not to encourage divorce, okay? It was, moreover, very much so to hinder divorce, okay? Uh, If you were to divorce a woman, it tells us, that, and she went and married someone else, you would never be permitted to take her back. Even if she were divorced again or if her new husband died uh, and she was legally uh, unmarried, she was available, single, you would not be able to take her back. This made people hesitate before making a a rash decision, knowing that once you divorced her, the chances of ever having her back were very slim. Okay? Also, Moses commanded that you had to get some special legal paperwork written up called a certificate of divorce. Okay? Finding a, a scribe uh, to uh, uh, put together this legal, legal paperwork uh, would, become, uh, would cost money to have them do this service for you, but it would also co- cost you time in trying to get all the proper paperwork, going to the person and doing those types of things. And so it was meant to be an obstacle, a hindrance to divorce. These commands that Moses gave, they were things that would make a husband perhaps think twice before hastily trying to just put his wife away, say, I don't want you anymore, and I'll just kind of get rid of you. Back in that day, it was believed that people could just put their wife out for whatever reason they wanted. I just, you know, don't want her anymore. And, And they kind of based that upon... If you guys recall, all the way back into the book of Genesis with uh, Abraham and his wife, Hagar, he just sends her packing one day and says, go ahead and, and just leave. And that was pretty much it. And so people felt like, oh, I'll just, I can send my wife just on her way whenever I want. Okay? So these commandments by Moses, they were meant to be something to restrict divorce, restrict a husband from doing that. However, the people, they completely missed the meaning behind Moses' words. Okay, and instead of understanding the context of what he was saying, they keyed in on something entirely different. They looked at verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they believed that Moses was speaking about details regarding allowances for divorce. Okay? Moses wasn't speaking about allowances for do- divorce in this section, okay? of Matthew, or excuse me, of Deuteronomy 24, okay? He was speaking about laws that were put in place to make people think twice about getting a divorce, laws that were meant to protect the wife. And so when Moses said, if a husband finds no favor in his wife because of some uncleanness, the rabbis set to understand and define what that word uncleanness meant thinking that Moses was identifying grounds for divorce, where you can legally, you're free to do it if there's uncleanness. Okay, Hillel. Remember, we have these two leading schools of thought. Hillel, school of thought, he was very loose with his interpretation of what uncleanness meant. He interpreted it to mean anything that was shameful towards the husband. And so if the husband ever felt ashamed of his wife, he could then give her a certificate of divorce and put her away. If his wife spoke ill of him in front of others, Hillel interpreted, that would be grounds for divorce. 
If his wife's cooking was something that he was ashamed of, he could get a divorce. Even if the husband found someone else to be more attractive than his wife and then caused him to feel ashamed to be married to her, he could then give her a certificate of divorce and legally divorce her. Anything that made the husband feel ashamed was grounds for divorce, according to Hillel. Now, Shammai, on the other hand, was much more strict. Okay? Uh, or much stricter. Not more strict is not in proper English. But anyway, uh, he interpreted that, that word uncleanness as being only in connection to a sexual offense committed by the wife. Okay? Under Shammai's interpretation, the only way one would be allowed to divorce his wife, his wife is if she committed adultery. Okay? Otherwise, you were to remain married until death. Well, one school of thought was championed over the other. Okay? And I'm sure that you probably won't be surprised to find out that it was Hillel's interpretation that was championed uh, amongst the people of the day. And everyone believed that Hillel's uh, interpretation was the proper interpretation of what uncleanness meant. Anything that made the husband feel ashamed was grounds for divorce. Okay? Actually, I was reading up about these two schools of thought, and almost always Hillel's stances were, would beat out the strict views of Shammai. Um, Jewish tradition even asserts that Hillel was asked to serve upon the Jewish Sanhedrin as the Nas, Nas, the president. Um, it, it was an office within the group of the Sanhedrin that gave him political power as well. And so he was very prominent. He was given a lot of power and a lot of influence. Interestingly, I find it interesting at least, Jesus has already spoken about divorce previously. And I have no doubt whatsoever that the Pharisees were very well aware of what Jesus had previously spoken about in regards to the topic of marriage and divorce. Okay? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was giving his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he spoke of the topic of marriage and divorce in verses 31 and 32. And this is what he said. Jesus said, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Based upon what Jesus already said, the Pharisees were probably well aware that his opinion opinion was contrary to popular belief, And so this became an opportunity for them to try and put Jesus into a trap. If he he says you can't get a divorce for just any reason, we'll prove that he goes against the teachings of Moses. Also, I'm sure they they were hopeful it would cause the people to turn away from him based upon his unpopular stance of what divorce, allowances for divorce. And so they think that they've got him. Okay, verse 4 through 6. Let's see what Jesus says when he answers their question about whether or not a man, it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason. Verse 4, Jesus answered and he said to them, 
Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. I love how Jesus answers the Pharisees' question. Okay? Jesus doesn't go to Rabbi Hillel's teaching on divorce. He, he doesn't go to Rabbi Shammai's teaching on divorce. He doesn't even really touch Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy 24 about divorce. No, he goes all the way back to the very beginning when God created marriage. Jesus takes things all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God established the marriage covenant and he points back to its original purpose. Back in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth and all the life that was upon the earth and we're told that he looked back and he looked upon it and it was good. It was, it was all good except for one thing. There was one thing that was not good in his creation. Genesis chapter 2 describes for us how when God looked at the creation of man, he realized that there was something missing. In verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, he said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And so the Lord created a helpmate for Adam. And she was named Eve. And Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his, joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Okay? Jesus, in his response to the Pharisees, was quoting from Genesis chapter 2. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees, he points out what I believe, just I, what I pulled out, four very important truths about marriage that we're going to look at here this morning. First and foremost, Jesus reminds us that marriage is something that was created and established by God. He is the authority upon the subject. Not Hillel, not Shammai, and, and not even Moses. This is very important to note because it doesn't matter what the religious rulers say and it doesn't matter what the political leaders say either. They are not the creators of the marriage covenant. They have no authority to say what marriage is or isn't. You know, today there is a battle going on over the definition of marriage. People are trying to redefine what marriage looks like. And they're trying to hijack this sacred covenant created by God and change it into something that does not honor the Lord nor His original purpose for marriage. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that, that marriage can be defined by anyone other than God. God established and ordained this special covenant relationship and nobody has the right to change it other than Him. Second, we see that marriage was designed to be for one male and one 
female. Marriage was not one male and two or three females or however many females you want. The Bible does not allow for or support polygamous relationships. The Bible does record many acts of polygamy, okay? Polygamous relationships. But never does God instruct someone to enter into this type of relationship. And in nearly all accounts of polygamous relationships, there are always problems that occur. Marriage is also not two males joining together, just as it is not two females joining together. Despite what the courts in America are saying, homosexual relationships cannot be described as marriage. They do not fit the description of what marriage is. And some of you may not think that it's a, a big deal if homosexual couples are allowed to get legally married, but it is. Just because they don't see marriage as a biblical covenant doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the effects that same-sex marriage will have upon a society. The effects upon a society uh, for supporting and allowing same-sex marriages are are many. They are important to realize. Uh, Matt Slick uh, from Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, uh, or CARM for short, has a great article that clearly shows a, a number of these effects of what happens to a society when we start to change what marriage looks like. Okay? He highlights a number of harms that can come from allowing same-sex marriage, and I would encourage you to read the article on his website. It's carm.org, C-A-R-M dot O-R-G. You have a, they have a search window there. You can just type in... Uh, uh, same-sex marriage, and it'll pop right up. Great article. Highlights a number of different things, and I felt like as I read it, it wouldn't be justice to try and bullet point them because I would have to go into detail, and we'd be covering it for the next week or so, and so I thought, I'll let you know about the resource. Please, I want to encourage you to, you know, sometime during this week, stop by that website and check it out. We don't have time to cover it here today, but I definitely would encourage you to do so. You know, this is something that's not only going on, uh, not only going to affect society, but it's also going to affect our churches. Support for same-sex marriages is growing within a number of churches within the United States. Just this last week, I think I read the article on Friday. On Friday, the Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church overwhelmingly voted in approval to change the language about the definition of marriage in their church, con- church constitution from a man and a woman to two persons. You know what? And, it, and it's happening in churches all over the United States and across the world. It is infiltrating the church. And it's wrong. The allowance and encouragement of marriage between homosexuals clearly is in opposition to God's word and his design for the marriage covenant. And I maybe ruffle a little feathers by making that stance, but it's one I'm not ashamed to make. Number three, thirdly, marriage is designed in such a way that two separate individuals are joined together to become one flesh. We know that this speaks of the sexual union between a husband and his wife, but it is not limited to this act alone. The joining together of two lives into one involves 
every aspect of your life, okay? Not just your sexual relationship, okay? I like how one commentator put it very simply. He said, marriage is given not that two people should do one thing together, but that they should do all things together. And I did a word study on that word joined together there in verse 5. And it comes from the root word proskaleo. And it literally means to glue one thing to another. Okay? The idea of being joined together in one flesh is like taking your life and gluing it to your spouse's life so that the outcome becomes one new whole life. Now, I thought it would be appropriate to do a little object lesson here this morning. And so I, I brought with me two pieces of paper, okay? A, a blue one, this represents the male, okay? And I got a pink one, one male, one female, right? Should this male meet this female one day and ultimately decide after much prayer, much prayer and counseling, you youth kids over there, okay? And, you know, many, many years, perhaps, and parents' approval, if they were to decide one day that they wanted to be joined together in marriage, okay, that they were to be wed, that we could easily portray what that union would look by simply by gluing these two pieces of paper together. Take some glue, okay? I'm going to pretend like I'm doing this, okay? Because I've already taken the liberty of doing this beforehand. It was a prearranged marriage, okay? We now have one new piece of paper. They're still distinctly male and, and female, as you can see here, the, the blue and the pink, they, they weren't glued together. It didn't change into some shade of purple that was uh, undistinguishable. You couldn't see the male or the female anymore. It's still very much male and female. Okay? The, the two still very much have their identity as males okay, and females, but, but now they're one flesh. They're just one solid piece of paper here. Okay? Whatever happens to the man happens to the woman as well. And so when the man feels pain, well, the woman feels that same hurt and vice versa. And when, when one of them struggles, the other one goes through that same struggle together. When things are going good, the other one gets to partake in and share in that blessing. You see, they, they are one. They're inseparable. Whatever happens to one, whatever experiences they may go through, they go through it together. They experience the same triumphs. They experience the same failures and the same difficulties and trials in life. Whoever said marriage was 50-50 had no idea what, about, what marriage was really about. Marriage is a, is a complete 100% giving of yourself to be joined together in one flesh. You give everything, and, and your spouse gives everything, and you become one flesh. 
Fourth and finally, Jesus pointed out that marriage is meant to be a lifelong union. As he indicated by saying, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is meant to be a lifelong decision based upon a commitment to the Lord and to one another. That's why in the traditional marriage ceremony, we make vows that say, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Okay? We vow to commit to one another no matter what circumstances come our way. And we usually conclude our vows with, until death do us part. Divorce was never part of God's plan for marriage. You know, that same Greek word for separate there in verse 6, it's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Uh, when Paul addresses the issue of divorce amongst believers, Paul said, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. The word depart in 1 Corinthians 7.10, it's the same word separate in verse 6 of Matthew 19 of our text. Okay? And it, it clearly is attached to the idea of divorce as Paul is speaking upon that very topic in 1 Corinthians 7. There is a reason God never had divorce as part of his original plan. The reason can be easily demonstrated actually going back to our paper once again. Okay? If we try to separate this couple that has been joined together in marriage, look at what happens. I'm going to try and do it. We'll see if I can get a corner. I glued it really well, I think. Oh, man. Okay, I'll get it over here maybe in this corner. Okay, here we go. Even if I'm really careful and ginger and I try to like carefully rip this apart and, and separate what God has joined together as glued two lives together, we've got this male and this female and they decide, you know what, it's not working out. We're just going to separate. We're going to go our separate ways. And uh, this is what ends up happening to those lives. Does this, does this look like the blue paper that started off? Or does this look like the, the pink paper that started off with? It, it's all shredded up. It gets torn and ripped up. And, and that's what happens to a life that goes through a divorce. It gets all messed up. Okay? You never get your life back the way that it was before. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to just reset and start over. It's not how it works. Now, thanks to the Lord, a life can be put back together. And there is still hope for someone that has been divorced to still live a life of blessing in the Lord. But it's not easy. And that is why the Lord never intended for couples joined together in marriage to ever be separated. Let's continue verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Ah, the Pharisees, they think, they think they're so sneaky. They think that they've trapped, has been set, that Jesus took the bait, and now they have him. 
Because Jesus indicated that husband and wife should not be separated. The Pharisees believe they've got Jesus right where they want him. Okay? They bring up the scriptures that speak about the certificate of divorce mentioned by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we already looked at earlier in our study. In bringing up this scripture, they're trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And if they can prove to the people that he doesn't follow the teachings of Moses, that they can use that to try and discredit him and his ministry. But as we already noted, Moses, he was not creating means for divorce nor promoting divorce. He was trying to control it, to keep it from being entered into rashly. And so let's see how Jesus responds to their trap. Oh, we got you. Why did Moses say this then? Verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus very keenly, he dissects their argument here. In verse 8, he clarifies that Moses did not command divorces, but permitted divorces. And he only permitted them because of the hardness of people's hearts. Divorce was only permitted because of sin. Because of people's hard hearts. You know, sometimes the heart of the offending party is hard. And they will not do what must be done to reconcile the relationship. And sometimes the heart of the offended party is hard. And they refuse to reconcile and get past the offense. Even when there is remorse and repentance, oftentimes the hardness of heart is on both sides. Jesus, after clarifying the context of Moses' words in Deuteronomy, again referenced back to God's original intention in the marriage covenant when he said, but from the beginning it was not so. You know, as a side note here, not necessarily regarding marriage and divorce, I'd like to note how Jesus responded to the questions and argumentative approach of the Pharisees. He referenced the scriptures. When the Pharisees asked about divorce, he took them to Genesis, and he explained the design of marriage to them. When they got a little argumentative and tried to use scripture to support their side, he was able to explain to them how they had an improper interpretation of that scripture and that uh, improper understanding of that scripture. We would do well to be able to follow in Jesus' example. When people come to you with questions about life, about what we think about certain topics, when applicable, we ought to be able to take them to the scriptures and show them why we believe the way that we do, or why we do the things that we do. Similarly, if people come to you with a, a bit of an agenda and, and maybe try to use Scripture to support their opinion or views that are contrary to what you believe and what the Bible truly teaches, we need to be able to show them how they are in error, to take them to the Scriptures and explain to them how they have misinterpreted the Word of God. That's what Jesus did here. You know, the scriptures exhort us to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And it tells us to do it with meekness and fear. First Peter chapter three, verse 15. Jesus explained, exemplified this for us in this situation. 
Jesus, he continued his address towards the Pharisees, and he echoed the words he previously shared from his Sermon on the Mount in verse 9. Now, we're going to look at verse 9 and try and bring some understanding to what Jesus is saying. But before we do that, I want to warn us all about uh, not to look at verse 9 like the Pharisees and rabbis looked at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Remember, they they looked at Moses' words about divorce and came to the conclusion that he was trying to explain to them the many different ways that you can get a divorce. They even went as far as to suggest that divorce was commanded by Moses based upon Deuteronomy 24.1. And so when we look at verse 9, let's not do so with the same intent. Or the same desire. We want to look at verse 9 and and try and figure out all the various ways that we can legally seek out a divorce. And we don't want to look at verse 9 and conclude that Jesus was commanding divorce either. Because he wasn't. Just like in Deuteronomy 24.1, where the interpretation of the word uncleanness was in debate so too the interpretation of sexual immorality is in debate today. The word in the Greek is porneia. It's where we get English words like pornography. Porneia has been interpreted a couple different ways. Some hold the view that Jesus was speaking specifically about an adulterous relationship where a married person is united as one flesh with someone other than their spouse and that the only means for someone to legally be divorced was if someone had this type of an adulterous affair with another person. Some hold to the view that porneia encompasses a broader spectrum than just an adulterous relationship. That it involves any type of illicit sexual act that is performed. This would include adultery, but also inappropriate sexual acts that do not involve biblical oneness. And so... I won't give examples, but not the whole thing, but other things... Okay, if we can understand, you guys are adults, you understand. Okay? <laughs> While still others, they hold to the view that the term has an even broader range. Okay? And, and not only includes adultery and other illicit sexual activities, but it also includes sins of the heart and mind. Jesus said, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, that word porneia. In Mark 7.21. And he said, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.28. And so based upon these verses, some hold that a person can be guilty of sexual immorality even without acts involving other people, but can do so through their eyes and through their mind and through their heart that they can commit Sexual immorality, porneia. Which interpretation is correct? It's debatable. Okay? I present the three to you. I believe that sexual immorality, the word porneia, involves a broad spectrum of sexual sin. 
And if I were to align myself with one of these three interpretations, I would say that the third interpretation is the one that most accurately describes the meaning of the word porneia. That it can involve not only sexual acts that were done uh, physically, okay, but also things that are, are, can be done in the mind and in the heart and with our eyes, that that is porneia. But as I said, the purpose of looking at this verse is not so that we can find all sorts of excuses to get a divorce. It's like, all right, you know, I can, I can get a divorce now because my spouse did this or did that. That's not the purpose of verse 9. That's not what's, what he's talking about. And so we don't want to jump to that conclusion. Jesus was not trying to give us a whole bunch of ways out of marriage when he spoke the words he spoke in verse 9. Also, I want to note that just because someone may commit sexual immorality, it does not mean that you should get a divorce. Jesus is not commanding divorce in cases of sexual immorality. He is simply permitting it, just as Moses was not commanding divorce, but permitting it. And I would encourage any married couple that has fallen into sexual immorality to try and be reconciled together before ever considering divorce as an option. God can restore broken relationships. I've seen him do it. I've seen him restore broken marriages when sexual immorality, even the most strictest adherence of what we say, oh, this, it's only this. I've seen that happen. And I've seen God restore those types of marriages. When there is a a soft heart and a repentant heart, God can do great things. And so I would never encourage divorce. But we're given a permission to divorce. It's permitted. It's not encouraged, okay? But it is permitted. The rest of verse 9, it deals with remarriage of the improperly divorced person. Okay, basically what Jesus is saying in the rest of verse 9 is that someone really isn't divorced in the eyes of the Lord if they divorce for any other reason than sexual immorality. Because they are still technically married in the eyes of the Lord, if they were to be joined together with anyone else, they would be committing adultery. Adultery meaning partaking in intercourse outside of marriage. And so if you've improperly been divorced, you haven't been divorced in God's sight. And so if you go and have another relationship with someone else, even though you think you're divorced, God says, no, 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 you're not. And you're committing adultery by having that relationship there. I thought at this time, I thought, do I stop here and try and go into all the different, well, what if this situation? And what if that situation? And what if, you know, this happens and that happens? Can we remarry then? And what if, there's too many to try and figure out and explain. If you seriously want to talk about it, I'd love to talk with you about it. If you need counsel in regards to the situation, I would love to sit down and talk with you about it. Verse 9 is saying, Jesus is not encouraging divorce. He's not trying to say, here's all the ways that you can, you can divorce and it's okay. He, he's, he's simply saying, hey, it's permitted because of sin. Just like, just like Moses said, it was permitted. Be, he said it was permitted because your hardness of heart. And just like that in the New Testament, divorce is permitted because of sin. Because people sin. And because people sin, there becomes permission to do it. It is not an endorsement of it, however. Let's continue. Verse 10, 
His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. The disciples, after hearing Jesus speak about the design of marriage, being a lifelong commitment and clearly showing that the popular opinion of the day was wrong okay, and that you can't divorce your wife just because you were ashamed of her, uh, they came to Jesus and they concluded that it was probably better not to marry at all. And, and Jesus responded that, that all could not accept this saying, that it is better not to marry. That's a difficult saying to accept. And it should only be accepted, Jesus said, by those who, to whom it's been given. Jesus is speaking about celibacy. Celibacy is the, the state of not being married and abstaining from sexual intercourse. This is a life that is not for everyone, okay? but is to only those to whom it has been given. And Jesus then identifies three particular types of people that may be able to receive this saying in verse 12. And Jesus characterized these people as eunuchs. The word eunuch actually means a keeper of the bed or bedchamber. Okay? It was an office like a guard would be stationed within a royal household. They would be stationed. You're a guard within this bedroom and you could be of the opposite sex and it was no problem, you're a guard in that room, you were a eunuch, okay, a keeper of the bedroom. And the reason that these people were entrusted with watching over a bedroom was because they were not people that were given to strong sexual desire. Jesus characterized them as one, three different ways. One, being eunuchs from birth. Okay? This implies some sort of birth defect that was beyond the control of the individual. They were born a, a eunuch. Okay? Others were made eunuchs by men, okay? indicating that they were castrated. That's the technical, worm, technical word. Uh, you want to look it up later, you can look it up. I'm sure most of you know what that means. Okay? Finally, Jesus described eunuchs that were made eunuchs by choice. Okay? Uh, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Now, this does not imply castration, okay? uh, but simply the idea of a life of celibacy. Jesus encouraged those that are able to accept it to go for it, to live a life of celibacy. Jesus lived this kind of life. So did the apostle Paul. In fact, Paul also encouraged those that were able to live this sort of life to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32 through 38, he describes what a life of celibacy and the benefits that come with a life of celibacy. In verses 32 and 33, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Verse 33, But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. You see, married couples, they are bond, they have a bond, and they've been glued together to their spouse, and they must care for one another. An unmarried person does not have the same care. 
and he can come and go as the Lord directs them. They're able to freely devote themselves fully to the Lord. The Lord says, hey, I want you to go over here. I'm there. I want you to go here. I'm there. Hey, I don't have to worry about my wife or my children and taking care of them because I don't have that responsibility. And so in this manner, Paul believes it's better not to marry so that you can live fully unto the Lord. But he also states in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you try this route, but find that you're starting to have feelings towards others, that then to go ahead and get married. There, there's nothing wrong. He says, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? You say, I'm gonna, I want to live that type of life for the Lord. And I think the Lord's given this to me. And then you realize, the Lord has not given this to me. He says, go ahead and get married. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. Go ahead and get married. You know, the, the, the calling and the life of celibacy, I, I believe, is a rare and beautiful calling of the Lord. And one to be cherished if the Lord has given that to you. The Lord has not given that to me, obviously. Okay? Uh, I have a wife and kids. But it's a beautiful thing. It's not to be something to look down, be looked down upon. Uh, or, or you think, oh, what's wrong with them? They're not married. You know, that's, that's wrong. Okay? This is a beautiful and rare calling and one to be cherished and encouraged greatly uh, within the church body. And so I would just encourage you guys the same. Uh, as I look around, I see a lot of married couples, but if you have children and they feel like maybe that's something they can do, or if you're here and you're single and you think that's something the Lord has for you, I would encourage you to go for it. As he said, you know, let him who can, who can accept it, accept it. Verse 13 through 15, let's finish up our portion of Scripture here this morning. Verse 13, it says, Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. You know, I find it so interesting how the disciples so quickly can forget. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, You'll recall that just a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 18 of Matthew, and when the disciples were arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You guys remember they were arguing about that? Uh, and, and do you remember how Jesus responded in his response to their arguing? He, he set before the disciples a child, and he proclaimed in verse 3, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you'll be by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 5, he said, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Jesus encouraged the disciples to become childlike and to receive the little children. And yet here we read of them rebuking the children. Jesus interrupted the disciples and corrected them. And he once again explained that the kingdom of heaven was was as of such. Jesus laid his hands upon the children. He prayed for them. It doesn't tell us that they were sick. And so most likely it's uh, not laying on hands for healing, but for blessing. You'll just lay your hands upon your children and bless them. And that's a a biblical thing to do, to lay your hands upon your children and pray blessings over them and to pray for them. I want to encourage you parents to be doing that. You know, at first when I was going over this portion, I I thought this part about children coming to the Lord for prayer doesn't really seem to fit in uh, regards to the rest of what's going on in the beginning of these, uh, beginning verses of this chapter. But I was wrong, okay? It's very fitting 
that after discussing divorce, that Jesus then turned his attention towards the children. Children are always directly affected by the divorce of their parents. And I, and I like the picture here that we see, the, the fact that after speaking about divorce, we see Jesus' heart for the children. By God's grace, I have not had to deal with this matter firsthand. Both Farah and my parents are still uh, married. Uh, but, and I can't imagine the heartache and, and the toll that divorce places upon children. And I know a number of you have gone through that and have experienced that difficulty. You know, but I'm encouraged and I'm blessed to see here that God's heart for children is very evident. And it makes me confident that, that He will care for those children that are affected by the pains and difficulties that divorce can bring. And so I just thought, at first I thought, what's this about? I thought, no, Lord, this is very fitting. This is very fitting to see your heart for children, to know that you love these children, that you're going to care for these children, uh, and you blessed and laid your hands upon these children. Well, today we looked at a touchy subject. Divorce and marriage and eunuchs and celibacy. Um, we looked at the four truths about marriage that Jesus pointed out, that it, it was God-established and, and ordained by God, and He alone has the right to say what it is or what it isn't. We looked at how God's design for marriage was that it was to be one male and one female, that it was uh, two lives being joined together as one, and that it was a lifelong commitment. We were encouraged to, to be ready to give an answer as Jesus, He he had these guys coming and having questions and, and argumentation, and he was able to say, let's go back to the scriptures and let's, let's clarify here where you were wrong. And, and, and he did it not in, a, in an abusive or attacking way. He did it, uh, as we're encouraged to do, uh, with meekness and fear. Okay? We looked at how God can restore broken marriages. Okay? That if you have gone through something like this, that there is hope for you still that God can restore and God can take something that looks like this and by His grace make it into something that is usable again and, and can be blessed again only by His grace. We looked at celibacy. It's a beautiful calling. It's a rare one. I would encourage you to, if you know someone in that, calling to encourage them in that calling and then we looked at just god's heart for children and uh pray that you are blessed not a fun topic this morning not one we're like Woohoo, all right i'm excited church was great but uh hopefully something that we're we're able to put some things under our tool belt we're encouraged to know the heart of the lord in regards to these matters of marriage and divorce and, and topics that are a little bit difficult to talk about amen